The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, April 25th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And you, you are real Americans. I just wanted to make this point. Listener surveys indicate you might live in states that touch an ocean. It's okay. You're still real. Or maybe you went to college or like hold a passport. It's okay. I know you've been looking down at your arm to see if it's been disappearing like Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future, but it's okay. You are real. I say this because George Stephanopoulos didn't. He was just short on time over on this week, this weekend, when he introduced Republican radio host Cincinnati's Bill Cunningham. I think there's a disconnect among the real people who live in America and the coastal elites. And what do these real people you speak of want? For real people, it's about jobs, the economy, and immigration. Okay, tell me about your sampling methods. I can go weeks and weeks and never get a telephone call from anyone criticizing the Trumpster. We love Donald J. Trump. Well, lack of critical calls to right-wing radio, a fine, fine rubric to go by. Got any others? We're the middle of Trump country. I can walk or drive to Canada, Mexico, the Atlantic Ocean, and the border of California and never set foot in a Clinton state or a Clinton county. Okay, you're based in Cincinnati. Cincinnati went for Clinton. Your county is Hamilton County. Hamilton County went for Clinton. So your premise starts off false. Maybe you could walk somewhere, but where you start from, that's a blue place. And it's also true, by this same exact logic in 2012, you could start from your blue state or your blue county, and then you could walk to the Atlantic or Canada or the Gulf of Mexico or the border of California, that's a weird designation, without setting foot in a blue state. So what? People are people. States are states. Real people, your people, my people, the people are what matters. All right, but anyway, do you have any last thoughts on geography? Like, can you name a city or state that is responsible for killing the most Ohioans who are on drugs. 3,000 Ohioans are going to die this year from heroin overdoses. All of that's not coming from Tennessee. It's coming from Guadalajara. And that was Bill Cunningham, News Radio 700 WLW, Cincinnati, Ohio. Goes weeks without hearing from someone who doesn't like Trump, and now we have heard from him. I wouldn't have known about Bill Cunningham without ABC's This Week. So, thanks. On the show today, I interview an author of the deeply sourced book that burrows inside the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign and excavates the ruins. And in the spiel, I talk about a big takeaway from that book, the idea that Hillary Clinton didn't give a good reason for running. But first, here is Jonathan Allen, co-author of Shattered. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. 
cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign was a lot of things. Historic, compelling, deeply disappointing to some. And now, in the new book Shattered by Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes, it is said to have been part of a doomed campaign. That is the subtitle inside Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign. Jonathan Allen is here. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. Thanks for having me. Do you define doomed as failed or destined to failed? Because both, I looked it up, are definitions. Uh, Definitely failed. And I think if you look into the reporting of this book, there is a, a, certainly a feeling of that destiny. That said, she lost by 70,000 votes in three states, essentially, and she could have won despite all of the things that went into being doomed. So I wouldn't go so far as to say it is just failed, and I think that's part of the point of the book, that she put herself in a position where Donald Trump could win the presidency. You report on so many warring factions within Team Hillary. This book is an excellent glimpse because of your reporting tactics, which were to give everyone anonymity and not report anything before the election. So I felt like we really got insight we hadn't had before. And at one point, you even describe it using an analogy about a Venn diagram. How would you best try to convey just how Byzantine this campaign was? I'm not sure what we're allowed to say on this podcast. You're allowed to uh, say, but it would start. It would st- <laughs> yeah, that's what I was want. looking for. That's exactly the term <laughs> I was looking for. The the modern ver- version of the uh, disorganized orgy. Um, I, basically, you had a lot of camps, and this has been true in Clinton world forever. That there are so many people that are engaged in the the sort of larger Clinton world that there are all sorts of places where they rub together. And the the analogy we used was it was like a traffic jam on a Venn diagram. And if you think can think about it like this. You've got the campaign team, which is huge in and of itself. This was a billion-dollar campaign, and that is a big entity on its own. Then you've got the Bill Clinton world, which is the Clinton Foundation, people on his staff who ended up working with the Clinton campaign directly and and sort of being an annex of it. And then in addition to that, you've got all kinds of advisors from Hillary Clinton's different stops around the world, her childhood friends, to her State Department folks, people from the White House, people that she's met over the years. Some of them are celebrities. I mean, there's just a lot of people who have some access and some set of inputs. And and obviously, you've got the, the Democratic National Committee. There are all these different sort of institutions and entities, and their their power lines are crossed and their communication lines are crossed. And even within the campaign, Robbie Mook, the campaign manager, uh, was not entirely layered over. He kept control of a lot of things, but he was no longer sort of the, the unitary leader of the campaign in that they created a sort of board of directors called the Super Six, which included Yeah, and uh, I thought, let me, just interrupt, let me just interrupt and say, yeah. I thought this was fascinating. To streamline operations, she or her people can Cocked a junta of a half dozen, right? This wasn't, this wasn't, all right, we're leveling everything and there's going to be one guy in charge. There are now six people in charge and this was considered streamlined. Right. Everything is done by committee and, and you see that there's no clear line of authority. And this is a problem, not only at the top where you have 
you know, a lot of passive aggressive warring going on, but it makes it impossible for the people below them to know who's in charge. Well, some are passive aggressive, right? John Podesta said of Robbie Muck, he's passive aggressive. I'm just aggressive. These are two important people who are calling the shots, some of the shots in the campaign. That's exactly right. And in fact, that was at a, a senior staff retreat in, I think, June of 2016. So they're so far down the road, June of 2016, and they're doing a presentation for the senior staff on who's in charge of what. And then, you know, Podesta gets up and he's trying to explain what the dynamic has been to that point. And he says, you know, Robbie's passive aggressive and I'm just aggressive. And in a nutshell, he sort of explains what one of the big problems was there. Mook looked at Podesta as a guy who would come in and out and not necessarily stick to particular projects. He would just come in and breeze in, tell them what, what was going wrong, call Robbie a bunch of names, and then roll out. From Podesta's point of view, Mook was holding information back from him. You know, So this was a real problem at the top of the leadership structure. Basically, the top two people didn't really get along. Unbelievable. And yet at the same point, whenever there's a presidential re-election, and in this case, Hillary hadn't won, but she's already an institution. I mean, let's take Bill Clinton. There are a lot of people who are involved in a campaign. I mean, we all saw the war room and we know that when he was the comeback kid, it was a streamlined operation. But there was Carvel and Stephanopoulos and Begala and Harold Ickes and Rahm and Didi and Mandy Grunwald. I mean, it wasn't that there weren't a lot of people for Bill. I think it was just that Bill himself was stronger. And with Hillary, you had a weaker candidate who wasn't able to say, no, you're wrong. No, I'm listening to this guy. You four people get out of the room. I'm going to write my speech. You know, it'll be it'll be me and the speechwriter and that'll be it. I think so much came down to Hillary's inability to either trust her gut or to cut people out of the process. I think a lot of that stems from the inability of her to articulate a message that is her clear purpose for how she's going to change the country. Because once you can articulate that, then everything else sort of gets subsumed into that. And you see that with a Bernie Sanders or a Donald Trump. For the Clinton folks, I think it was very difficult in part because the candidate wasn't setting a clear direction. And it also seemed to me that she prizes policy. So there were so many people there working on what her policies would be. And this just wasn't a policy election. Yeah, I mean, to to her credit, she's brilliant and really understands public policy in ways that a lot of people don't. To her detriment, you know, she tried to build a platform with every possible imaginable plank of a position on policy and then form them into some sort of overarching idea. And I think most candidates have just a couple of things that they really want to get done that sort of tie into their basic message for their candidacy. So she sort of did it backward from, I think, how most politicians do it. Because it mattered to her. And, you know, this isn't a knock. And I I hope what comes through in this book is that it's reporting and it is assessment and analysis of how the campaign was run. These aren't value judgments about Hillary Clinton as a person or whether her policies are right or wrong. You know, she's somebody who really believed that the right thing to do was to figure out where she stood on all the policies and have her message and have her campaign come from that instead of the other way around. Well, maybe she could have if there were just one or two people like an Axelrod figure or an overarching figure who was or a rove figure, but one or two people who really drove the ship. And that's what your book points out, that there were so many people and so many cooks that it seems impossible. I mean, there hasn't I can't think of an example where that sort of structure has won the day in something like a presidential election. Yeah, it's very difficult. You know, this was a kind of a behemoth. The infighting of the staff is really part and parcel, I think, of this sort of lack of direction from the candidate. 
you know, that sort of sense of doom. These these folks said basically their mantra was we're not allowed to have nice things yeah. because every time something good happened, they knew there was something around the corner that was just going to come out of nowhere and bite them. I think that was difficult for them to do. Even before the campaign started in March of 2015, we see this private email server story come out. And that has so many tentacles and is so long running. It starts from before she announces the campaign, right up until Jim Comey, you know, sort of exonerates her from the second opening of the investigation, you know, just days before the election. Uh, This is something that ran the entire campaign long and also something that is unusual, right? I mean, this was a a, sort of an own goal, maybe the colossal own goal of American politics. So... Obviously, this was an overdetermined election. There were dozens of things that maybe one or two, if they had changed, uh, could have had a different result. But I think a major thing, it's right here quoted when she's talking to a friend and uh, confidant, Minion Moore. She's a friend of Hillary, but also a campaign expert. And you have Hillary unburdening herself to Moore saying, I don't understand what's happening with the country. I can't get my arms around it meaning the anger, the exactly what Trump tapped into, Hillary didn't understand. And that seems really important to me. Part of that is that she is somebody who has believed and maintained over the course of a long time that the best way to make positive change in society is to work through the existing system. She is somebody, for better or worse, who really believes in the American system and watching people being successful, wanting to tear that down rather than find a way to change it from within, I think was kind of stunning to her. A character in her campaign, one that I've always been fascinated with, is this guy, Elon Kriegel. He's essentially the data expert. And Robbie Mook, her campaign director, really relied on him. And Hillary was really into the numbers, too. And I have to say, I am. I'm into analytical data. And as I was reading the book, I mean, a narrative has emerged that they over-relied on the analytics and they didn't go in for kind of the the old-school way of doing things. At one point, you have um, the decision not to go and try to persuade white voters in the upper Midwest suburbs. And uh, someone says, well, it's, it's, it would be very hard to do. But if you don't try to persuade them, it's impossible to win them over. And this was posited as some sort of rebuke to analytics. But I don't understand how that's the opposite coin of analytics. I don't understand really still from reading your book what analytics got wrong in her campaign. At one level, the sort of basics of what analytics got wrong is that their surveys were wrong, but they weren't any more wrong than the available public polling. The debate was basically whether whether you put all your eggs in the basket of boosting your own base and getting them to come out for you, which is much more efficient in terms of cost, or you, you spend some time trying to persuade people. And I think the belief among some of the old school people and, and you know Bill Clinton in particular, and we go through this in the book, is the key to politics is being able to go out and persuade people and to be able to change the numbers when they're not in your favor. You can get into a place, I think, with when you're looking at numbers where you just believe that they're always going to be the same. So there's a chicken or the egg thing that emerges from this, which is, was she unable to persuade people because she didn't try, or did she not try because she was never going to be able to persuade them? Well, to me, this isn't an analytics problem. This is a Hillary Clinton as a candidate problem. Yeah, Bill, Correct. Bill Clinton says, go to Michigan and win those voters over. 
Bill Clinton can do that. Hillary Clinton has never showed a propensity to do that. In fact, in your book, you quote a Michigan expert saying, we didn't want her to come in. Every time she did, she'd just remind people about the election and hurt herself. Maybe Robbie Mook said, if I had Bill Clinton running, I'd spend the money to try to persuade. Since I have Hillary Clinton wanting, running and she's never really been able to persuade someone, I think turning out the base is the better way to right. do it. No, no. And, and who knows what would have happened? Maybe they would have just wasted money trying to persuade people. But they didn't try at all. And I think that that was unusual. I think it was unusual for people who were in politics to to watch a campaign that, did, that didn't try basic persuasion. I mean, there were just from the primary on, there was a sense among the white working class that her campaign was focused away from them. Mm-hmm. And that had the effect of alienating them. And I think that that was something that became you know, sort of a deeper and deeper spiral as time went on. Do you think she made any good decisions or decisions that everyone agreed with that seemed really logical at the time that just didn't work out? Sure. I think she made some good decisions that worked out. I think she, her debate performances, uh, both in the primary and in the general election, are the kind of stuff that any candidate would want to watch to learn about how to master all the the policy that you're going to be talking about, how to do back and forth with your opponent. If you were to grade her on you know what she's capable of doing on a public platform, her debate performances, particularly in the general election, would have been you know high A's. Yeah, but on those debate performances, I mean, in the book, I think the third debate is dealt with in a paragraph, if not less than a paragraph. Sure, she won the third debate. Whereas, for instance, her coughing fit and fainting spell, which you refer to as the pneumonia incident, that takes up six pages. Do you think that the coughing fit was that much more important to voters than both the second and third debate? It's a good question. I think think that the video of her essentially being dragged into a van was something that was alarming for a lot of people both inside and outside the Democratic Party. And while she recovered, it didn't look good. I don't know anybody who thought that that was a, a good moment for her or anything other than a place where it seemed to to reinforce what Donald Trump and Republicans have been saying. Her own staff said to us of the debates, they just had no shelf life. But but which like, was a new thing in this in did, this were they election that, cycle? Were, were they saying that after the election when well she lost? Let's explain it. I mean, she the the big markers of a campaign are conventions and debates, and she wiped the floor with him in all of them. And so I know she lost. So of course, post hoc, I guess the explanation is say, well, that doesn't matter. But what's the evidence that it doesn't matter? Were they showing that the polls like flattened out the day after? Let me just say, I love your uh, desire for logic. <laughs> I, I loved your book. It got inside the dynamics of the campaign. If I do have one criticism, it's that it was very Hillary focused. That's not the criticism, but it's almost like covering a football game and you're writing only, you're very focused on one team and you talked all about the two or three turnovers that team had. But if the other team had four or five turnovers, I, I, it's the comparison that I think is the more important thing than the sheer number. In general, obviously you're writing about Hillary and the Hillary campaign certainly made mistakes. I'm just trying to square it with why was it fewer mistakes than Trump made? Or maybe the answer is he was really running a campaign that the fundamentals of it were more aligned to where the electorate was. Maybe that's the answer. Well, and particularly in the states that ended up mattering. Yeah. We were focused on her because we wrote a previous book about her and that's, you know, it was going to be an interesting story this time around. It's funny, in October, our editor sent us a note 
and said, guys, I, I'm I'm having trouble with the book. And, and we were like, you know, because we'd written a lot of it already. Yeah. And he was like, I'm having trouble with the book. And we were like, well, what's what's the problem with the book? And he goes, God, there's just like, there's all this doom and mistakes and, you know, infighting and, you know, all this stuff that's like so negative and she's going to win the presidency. Yeah. But we just sort of, my co-author and I just sort of felt all along, like if we just do our jobs as reporters and write what we're finding that's interesting, win or lose, we will end up having a, a book that has some value. Jonathan Allen has covered politics for Political Bloomberg and Vox, along with Amy Parnes. He is the author of Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's my pleasure. Thank you. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. Yes, we can. Hope and change. It's morning in America. In your heart, you know he's right. Make America great. It's the economy, stupid. Who is James K. Polk? That last one, that was the Whig's actual slogan to which Polk's answer reverberates through history. Oh, just the president, bitches. But I was thinking about this because I read the book Shattered and you got to hear the interview. But in the book, there was this big complaint about the Clinton campaign. And you heard the complaint even during the campaign. The book puts forward the idea that Hillary's own team could not adequately answer the question, why is Hillary running? What is the reason for her running? Now, Donald Trump, that guy had a reason to make America great again. Wait a minute. How, how is that a reason? What, what's that even mean? When, when was it great? Are you sure it's not great now? It doesn't matter. That's his reason. Reason for running is basically a slogan that gets repeated a lot. And a lot of those slogans I recited at the top weren't really the reasons. They were just the slogans. But in general, a slogan times a thousand or two thousand repetitions, that's a reason. And here's how it works. You say the phrase a thousand, couple thousand times, maybe put it on a hat. The media roll their eyes. Oh, the guy's always saying it. And then the next level is not just noting the familiarity, but then questioning the premise. So the media, like a place like Slate, might do this kind of article. You know, Barack Obama says hope and change. But really, in many ways, he's just a traditional mainstream Democrat. Okay, but it doesn't really matter because all that nitpicking, oh, God, stop saying it. And oh, God, it's not even true. All that is preferable to why are you running? You never said why you're running. Here, during the campaign, was MSNBC's Mika Brzezinski. She was talking to Hillary Clinton surrogate Jennifer Granholm. What is Bernie Sanders' message, and what is Hillary Clinton's message? Well, I'm, Hillary Clinton's message is not what you guys were saying, that it was all about her being the most, uh, the most experienced. That's true. Her message, and you have heard it, is that she's out there fighting for people to break down barriers so that they can raise their income. She is about making sure everyone has the opportunity to succeed. 
breaking barriers for all people. That could have been a great slogan or a fine reason. At least it gets the give me a reason police off your back. But Hillary Clinton never articulated it. Or maybe she did articulate it just not a thousand times and she never turned it into a hat. See, this is what I think is going on with the what's the reason crowd. Some politicians do indeed have a big reason. Lincoln wanted to preserve the union. Reagan wanted to shrink government. But most politicians do not. Most politicians want to be president because of, well, ambition, but also from a non-selfish standpoint, what they want to do is make a series of policy choices that benefit most Americans, or at least the Americans they care about benefiting. That is clearly why Hillary Clinton wanted to become president, to institute the best policies. Now, coming up with a reason is easier when you're the kind of politician whose best policies consistently follow a doctrine. So Bernie, progressive. Rand, libertarian. It translates to a reason for running quite easily. But when your version of best policies don't adhere to a strict ideology, as I think the best policies pretty much don't, then you're at a disadvantage. Sometimes the best choice is indeed sticking it to the millionaires and billionaires. But sometimes it's letting the rising tide raise all ships. Sometimes it's aggressively confronting dictators' strength. But other times, it's working out diplomatic solutions. I think the give me a grand vision crowd is biased towards drama and away from technocrats. And there is a lot to be said for a good, competent technocrat's ability to make people's lives better. Yeah, yeah, I know. Something like Michael Bloomberg in the streets and Boris Johnson in the sheets or something. But my God, don't we overemphasize showmanship over subject matter mastery in our leaders? And I think the demand that politicians give a grand new direction also is biased against moderates. It's easier for Bernie or Rand or Trump to have a clear, bold message because their ideas are a radical break from what's going on. If you don't feel like we need to throw out nearly everything and start over, it is hard to come up with the big reason. Or it's stupid to articulate that that's your reason in the face of a populace that is restless. So as a moderate, Hillary was at a disadvantage. At someone who is detail-oriented, she was at a disadvantage. As a rather lackluster communicator, she was at a disadvantage. You know, sometimes your reason for running is just that you're good at slogans. You say a lot of them and one sticks. Take Barack Obama. Now, here's a guy who offered a break in the policies of the two-term Bush administration. That's true. And of course, he, just being Barack Obama and who he was, he was a lot different. That his policies would work, that was the hope, but he himself was the change. Hillary couldn't offer a new hope. She was continuing on in the centrist democratic mode of Obama. And the change she represented, based on gender, not race, was a change that it turns out more Americans resented than four or eight years earlier. Hillary lost for a lot of reasons, bad luck, dumb luck, and indeed poor messaging. In the end, her reason for running wound up being this, I'm not Donald Trump. That seems to me to be as compelling a reason as a presidential candidate has ever given, but not enough voters would listen to reason. And that's it for today's show. Afim Shapiro and A.C. Valdez engineered our interview with Jonathan Allen. They did so on the principle of 5440 or fight. Chris Brube, just producer, promises peace with honor. Just producer Mary Wilson is quite literally 
The Man from Hope. Tippy Canoe and Lichtai 2, a reference to both Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network and head imagineer of the Tippy Canoe suite of audio solutions. The gist, reminding you of James Blaine's taunt of Grover Cleveland, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? Gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. And Cleveland's comeback. Blaine Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine. But let's not forget the anti-monopolist candidate, Benjamin Butler, who offered Cleveland Blaine, both fairly poor. But you know who's the worst? Ebenezer whore. Butler really hated that Ebenezer whore. He wasn't even on the ballot. Um, peru, de peru, du peru, and thanks for listening. I got in another Ebenezer Horror reference. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.